also knew I needed to get some skills first. I, I There are lots of different schools of thought of when is the right time to take that leap and, and try to start something. I saw in my dad's case, you know, he went to an Ivy League college and then he started out as an accountant and got his CPA and became a partner in the accounting firm and before he made that leap. And so that's one model. Yeah. And that's sort of the model that I followed. But in miniature, I only spent a couple of years in industry and in finance and investing before doing a startup. But I, I thought that was the right approach rather than just starting something straight out of high school or straight out of college before I had any real skills. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Spencer Raskoff. How are you? Great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming. So, you know, got to predict like you're born, you're, you know, in the delivery room and immediately you're like, hey, I've got this idea for buying and selling houses and taking the whole real estate industry online. And just from the get go, you that was that's it, how right? that's exactly how it happened. You got, you got it. Podcast yeah, no, over. <laughs> yeah, perfect. You got to the end really fast. But yeah, no, let's start uh, from the beginning. Where are you from? Where'd you grow uh, up? I grew up in New York until I was 12. And then I moved to L.A. Uh, I grew up on the Upper East Side uh, of, Manhattan, okay. of Manhattan until uh, through fifth grade. And then my parents moved us sort of kicking and screaming from New York to LA. But as soon as I got out here to LA, I quickly realized what, how awesome it is and, and glad that they moved me. But so New York and LA. That's, is a, that's a common younger person from New York kind of theory. I've, my mom's from New York. So I got a, you know, my cousins and everything growing up. They're like, I know oh, you Californians, you Californians are like, it's like, it's really kind of nice out yeah. here. Just try <laughs> It's good living. But, uh, and were your parents entrepreneurial? Like, yeah, tell me a little so bit more my, about- my mom, my mom was a real estate agent and a teacher. And, um, but mm-hmm. my dad was an entrepreneur and, my dad started his career as an accountant, and he was um, be- became the youngest partner at uh, what well, at the time was a big eight accounting firm. And yep. he ended up leaving accounting for an entrepreneurial career, really through happenstance. So, in I think it was 1972, before I was born, uh, he was the youngest partner at this accounting firm. And happened to meet a guy named Prince Rupert Lowenstein, who was the manager of the Rolling Stones. And he met him because uh, Rupert had come to my dad's firm to try to get them to be the accounting firm for the Rolling Stones uh, tours. And the, huh. his accounting firm turned them down because they were, you know, wild men of, of rock and roll and threw TVs out windows and did drugs and all sorts of stuff that accounting firms generally don't like. And my dad saw an entrepreneurial opportunity and left the firm to go and be become their tour accountant, not because he was interested in that lifestyle or even interested in music, really, but because he just saw it as as an exciting entrepreneurial adventure. And what began in that way morphed into a 40-year career as an entrepreneur, as the business manager and then tour producer for the Rolling Stones, for U2, David Bowie, Paul Simon, Pink Floyd, Shakira, The Police, and lots of other people. And so I grew up watching watching that, watching his entrepreneurship and watching him help invent and reinvent the music industry, the tour industry through a lot of technology changes, even through my childhood as platform shifted yeah. from cassette, you know, from, from records to cassettes to, well, I guess, records to eight tracks to cassettes to DVDs to streaming. I watched him have to reinvent his business as touring moved from something that was really small scale to much more global and, and required a totally different type of capital structure. You know, I, and we could do a couple hours just on this topic, but basically I watched his entrepreneurial career morph several times through through that as, as music and, and the touring industry changed. So that was my upbringing and it was very formative. Yeah. And 
did you ever want to follow in his footsteps and go into the? Music uh, I did want to follow side? in his footsteps, and uh, and, and sought to do so, and he was not. Uh, he, he would have none of it. <laughs> um, he was always opposed to me getting involved in in his business or the music industry for a couple of reasons. I think, firstly, he was steadfastly uh, opposed to nepotism of any kind. His his attitude was, you know, go figure it out on your own. Like we will, you know, my mom and I, my mom and my dad will pay for my education. I'll be able, fortunate enough to graduate from whatever the best college I can get into debt free and they'll pay for my tuition and then you know good luck <laughs> was kind of the the attitude that that they always had which which I appreciate and at the time I didn't appreciate but now yeah. you know now I understand the benefits of that type of a, of an upbringing and he also felt that the music industry was had become really an oligopoly and was very difficult to chart an entrepreneurial path in the late 90s and 2000s for me when I was coming out yeah. of college in a way that he was able to do in the 60s 70s and 80s when it was more more of a wild west. Yep, got it. And so, like, and you came to LA. You said when you were 12. Was that driven by this career? Was that driven by your dad's opportunity in the music industry? He was working really bicoastally. I mean, he was spending a lot of time in LA and in New York, and so he could have done his job in either place. And so it was driven by lifestyle. By by my my parents both wanting to live in LA just for lifestyle reasons, but uh, he was able to do his his job from either place. Got it. Very cool. And so, in in growing up, like, I guess, what age did you like? What when you were six, seven? What what did you want to be when you grew up? An like, what was, I, I wanted to start businesses, and and I did. I mean, I was starting businesses when I was when I was young. Uh, I would start a cookie and candy making business that I would sell, yeah. you know, sell cookies to my neighborhood. I started a, a tracing business where I would trace, kind of like I, I was I was no good at art, but I could get tracing paper and just copy and trace things and then sell those and call it art and you know yeah. whatever other random in, in entrepreneurial business I could I could find. And you actually say that like if someone said, "What do you want to be with grow up?" Would you mm. say, I probably, I, I, I probably didn't know that word back then. I probably would have said I want to start a company. But, but yeah, you know, yeah. French for I want to start a company is entrepreneur. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't exactly. know that back then. <laughs> I feel like that word wasn't popularized until like even you know what the last yeah, decade, so right. to speak. And, and like, it's still very hard to spell. I actually hate I hate using that <laughs> word or typing that word because it's so gosh darn hard to to, to spell. But. Hundred yeah. percent. But wanted to start a company. So, and we, 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 how old were you when you first said, "I want to start a company"? Were you five? Um, no, I was probably older than that. Probably ten. Yeah, probably, probably ten. Okay, nice. And so you come out here, you know, make the change. I guess right before high school to being in California. Uh, through high school, was it? Did it just stick? Like you knew you were going to build something, you just didn't know what yet. Yes, uh, but but I also knew I needed to get some skills first. I <laughs> there are lots of different schools of thought of when is the right time to take that leap and, and try to start something. I saw in my dad. Dad's case, you know, he went to an Ivy League college, and then he started out as an accountant and got his CPA and became a partner in the accounting firm. And before he made that leap, and so that's one model, yeah. and that's sort of the model that I followed, but in miniature. I only spent a couple of years in industry and in finance and investing before doing a startup. But I, I thought that was the right approach, rather than just starting something straight out of high school or straight out of college before I had any real skills. And did you end up going? I did. I went to was Harvard that... undergrad, okay. learned a lot about yeah. learning. I didn't really learn any discernible specific skills uh, because it's it's not an undergraduate business education. It's a liberal arts education. So you learn how to pro- solve problems, how to communicate, how to be a critical thinker, how to how to try to problem solve. But but I didn't really have any actual business skills per se. And so after college, I went into investment banking, which was very formative. And so I did two years at Goldman Sachs in the investment banking analyst program in the mergers and acquisitions group. And that's where I learned how to read an income statement, how to read a balance sheet, how to how companies think about capital formation, how how companies formulate business strategy. 
and and then I also learned how to how to present myself in a business setting and how to attend board meetings at a young age and how to uh, build attention to detail and how to build presentation skills and all these other characteristics which are critical to business success uh, which I, I learned during those first couple of years in investment banking got it and and so and, and you also you saw that as a stepping stone right you like I'm gonna go here and learn for a couple of years and that you that's why yes you and uh, this is something I talk a lot with with undergrads and, and early career folks and I, I teach a course at Harvard College called startups from idea to exit where I, I speak about this a lot which is I think it's important especially for early career people to look at somebody at your company say five or ten years your senior and say to yourself do I want that person's life the whole thing their their title their compensation yeah. the type of work they do their balance the respect they have in the community etc because that's where you're gonna end up like in the blink of an eye you're gonna end up yeah. in that person's chair and maybe you like yeah. it maybe you don't but like that's where you're headed so plan and uh, I knew very well in investment banking that I didn't want that path that that's for some people, but it wasn't for me. Uh, and, and so I did use it very much as a stepping stone. I worked my butt off. I, I learned a ton in those two years, but it was definitely just a, just a means to an end. And so those couple of years come up, what, what's going through your head? Like what, where did you kind of go next? Uh, I moved from San Francisco, sorry, I moved from New York from investment banking to San Francisco to work at a private equity firm. So this was, you know, this was 1999. Uh, the internet was just starting to, to really happen. And the very common path from banking to private equity was was sort of the well-worn path. So I moved to San Francisco, internet boom, was it a firm TPG, Texas Pacific Group, where I was doing buyouts, LBOs. And we started working on incubating a startup, which we at the time didn't have a name. So we called it Project Purple Demon. And Project Purple Demon was, that was my co-founder and I. So, you know, we just, we had to, it had to be something cool. We came up with it because we thought it sounded cool and, and full of mystique. And what, what Purple Demon was, was an airline consortium company to compete with Priceline. So at the time, Priceline was the big, you know, the big player in discount travel. They had given about a quarter of the company to Delta Airlines to get started. And so the idea that we had was wow. to go to American, United, Continental, Northwest Airlines, USA, and America West, basically the other six airlines in the US, and uh, and and try to form an co- industry consortium to compete with Priceline. And so Project Purple Demon would become Hotwire. And I left TPG, where we incubated this, to help run it with my co-founder. And so he and I started Hotwire. Wire in 1999 with TPG's help. And did TPG, TPG funded it? They did a 75 million dollar seed round, which at the time was a, a monster round. I mean, today that's that's not that's not unheard of, but back then in 1999 that was massive. And those six airlines got on board, and and so at age 23, I found myself as the co-founder. And I think my first job was CFO or COO or VP Corp Dev or some you know some nice and vague role, which allowed me to kind of do everything. Um, and my co-founder was the CEO, and so we started in in 99 and. You know, it, it was it was my moment, like my dad's, where where he left what was a pretty safe career path. My career path was investment banking and private equity. If I just kept my head down at TPG and and done nothing, I probably today would be a very uh, well compensated private equity yep. investor that had had a good career in private equity. But I just I wasn't as excited about that as I was about entrepreneurship and trying to start something. So that's why I made that leap to do startups. Nice, got it. And how was that? I mean, we know what happens in two thousand and two thousand. Yeah. With a doctor of so or bus, well, it so gets, what's, it gets worse it? than than, e- than even you might think. So we survived the 2000 sort of tech meltdown, but in 2001, right. in late 2001, 2001, 9/11 happened, right. and when 9/11 yeah. happened, that was really bad news for Hotwire. Uh, firstly, because we had sold tickets to the hijackers, not. The September 11th flights, but the September 10th flights that put the Boston Logan cell in position 
they bought their tickets from Bangor, Maine to Boston Logan on Hotwire. And we didn't share that with the company. Only a, a small handful of the senior team knew that uh, when the FBI told us that. And um, I only started sharing that story publicly a couple of years ago, once 20 plus years had passed. But but I, but I share it to give a sense of just this kind of awful sense of guilt that, that we at the senior level had of, of our connection to this tragedy. And then, of course, we had sold tens of thousands of tickets. We had travelers stranded around the country that couldn't travel for, I think it was 10 or 11 days that flights were grounded. And we entered in a huge travel recession where most folks didn't want to travel for six or 12 months. And I also, I personally was at the, I can't remember if it was a Hilton or a Marriott, but the hotel at the foot of the World Trade Center that was crushed. I had given a speech there on September 9th and I flew home on September 10th to San Francisco, then Newark to SFO flight, which was the, was flight 80, uh, 93 or 80, I think it was flight 93, the one that crashed in Pennsylvania. I was on that flight on September 10th, yeah. the day before. And so wow. you know, I was, I was very fortunate to obviously to not, um, you know, not have, have passed away in, in 9-11. And so it was a very difficult time for the company. And so we did layoffs. We went from about 200 employees to about 150. We did a down round, which ultimately saved the company, but we raised, I think, 20 or $30 million uh, in, a, in a down round. And it was it was two years of slog from 01 to 03 of just trying to muddle through and survive. And, uh, you know, and I mentioned that because a lot of companies are going through that now. And many of them went through during yep. COVID. Many of them are going through it again now. And it sucks, but that's the struggle. And the struggle is, you know, the struggle is what startups are all about. And that's where companies are, are made or not. So I went through that, you know, one to three, and then we succeeded in, in saving Hotwire. And by 2003, the company was doing well. And we ultimately sold to Expedia for about $700 million in 2003. That'll do. Wow. So that was only three years. Uh, yeah, four years, uh, 99 to 03. It felt right. like it felt like 40 years, but yeah, it was only four years it turned out. So, yeah. so- I mean, the, the amazing about that is you grinded through, a, like in four years, you went through a two-year recession, came out of it yeah. and sold for $700 million. I saw a lot. I saw this gets back to like what young people should be looking for from a career path standpoint is you should be trying to put yourself in a situation where you're going to get a lot of career growth in a short period of time. And even if Hotwire had failed yeah. by 2003, I I saw a lot. Yeah. I learned a lot. I learned how to manage people. I learned how to grow. I learned how to shrink. I learned how to raise money in good times. I learned how to raise money in bad times. Uh, you know, by 27, by, which was when I, we sold Hotwire, I had already lived two or three lifetimes in, in, in startup land, which positioned me really, really well for what came next. So that's, I think, what people should be looking for earlier. And so with Hotwire, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, like some hint of like what ownership did yeah. you have? Like, no, I don't, I don't mind you asking at all. And, and I, I do talk about this publicly because it's it's important. The, the answer is that because of the down round that we had to do after 9-11, most of the common equity was wiped out. So I, I did okay. I, I, you know, I did I did fine. I'm not I'm not complaining for a 27-year-old. I did. I did. Okay, we can't stop. No, no. no I, uh, like, I mean, when we sold, we sold for $685 million and I basically took all, all the money that I had made. I bought it. A house in Seattle, and I invested it in what would become Zillow, which was my next startup. So it, it was, um, you know, the lesson that I learned was just how destructive down rounds can be to cap tables. And this is something I don't, I really didn't understand well enough at the time. I think when we sold Hotwire in 2003, there were many employees, and even I, as co-founder, probably would can put myself among them. There were many employees that were were surprised by how little proceeds there were available 
once the yeah. once the once the VCs got paid back because of the owner's terms that we had to incur during the down round. So understand your cap table, founders and employees. Understand all those terms that you don't really understand because the lawyer you think the lawyers haven't figured out. You know, liquidation preference and ratchet and common versus preferred and all this like complicated legal stuff. It, it turns out it actually matters a lot when when things go not so great. When things go really, really well, none of that stuff really matters. But when things go right. sideways or down, it, they matter a lot. When I saw in a 10-year cycle, I just saw a post of this that seems super accurate like in terms of just a generic standard, is in a 10-year cycle, you're gonna, in a business, you're going to have two good years, sorry, two great years, six decent years, <laughs> and two bad years. Uh, to, it, I don't know a business that can't show right. that generally. Yeah, that's a, that's a good framework. I mean, obviously that people aren't used to that because we've had free money since 2009. So it's been like 11 right. years of great years and that's what happens when you have interest rates at right. basically zero. So Yeah, and now it's going to shift. but And I think it's going to be the two, the two years will be this year and next year will be that shift where people are getting used to it. And then people get used to it and you have, maybe you go back to the good years, not great years. And then again, there's going to be another bubble at some point. Everyone's going to overinvest in everything again. And that's how right. this, this shit works. So being aware of that, I think is super important for, as you said, understanding this and knowing that that could come. So being hedged against it too, because it's pretty crazy that you built this as a co-founder, yes. one of two, yes. right? Was you and another guy? Well, that, we had two, two co-founders. Co so we, we ultimately had four. We brought on two other okay. folks that, we, that became co-founders. Oh, four co-founders left you with enough money in a $700 million business and you had enough money to buy a house in a Seattle and start your next thing. Like, not fuck you money that you're done. Like, yeah. It's important for people to understand that because you see these numbers and most people don't understand. I have, friend, I have a friend that sold it, a very well-known friend that sold his company for a billion and, you know, he there was no down round and his take was still only uh, 8 or 9% was left in four years of or five years of building the company. So someone we both know. So it's like that kind of stuff that nobody realizes like that person's not a billionaire now because venture capital is as my dad frankly used to tell me money's expensive taking vc money is expensive <laughs> so you got to remember that all right so you build this you again you lived three lifetimes in four years you exit you make some money you're 27 and you're able to buy a house which is still great in a lot of senses too and you decide you got to go right back into the next thing like did you take a break at all did you take a breather or was it like already wheels were spinning and you went off to start so yeah getting back into it you sell this company again you still made decent money and you decided to take all that money again buy a house great you're 27 but i'm gonna take everything else and go start my next thing like was that immediate you just jumped right into the next yeah thing? so i i did not take any time off i moved from san francisco to seattle media at around the same time my wife got into med school in seattle at university of washington so it worked out perfectly uh personally that we moved from uh, san francisco to seattle and i started working at expedia and my my role there was to run the hotel business for expedia group which would become expedia hotwire hotels.com and eventually Travelocity and Orbits. And, you know, I was there for about a year and I was a little frustrated. I, I missed being at a startup. I, I found Expedia at, at that stage to be a little bit not very innovative and more big company than I than I wanted. And so I, I left Expedia to join the co-founders of Expedia who also had left. And we started iterating on business ideas to come up with new startup ideas. And it was there that we came up with the idea for Zillow. And this was 2005, 2006. And again, I, I didn't take a day off between Hotware and Expedia or Expedia to then start Zillow. But the creation of Zillow was about six months in a conference room of the co-founders just sitting there brainstorming on business ideas. And we knew we wanted to work together. We knew we wanted to do something disruptive in another vertical. And we came upon this idea of trying to provide information transparency in real estate because even though there were plenty of real estate sites by 2005, 2006, there were none that were consumer oriented. There were plenty that, were, that prioritized yeah. the professional, that prioritized the realtor, but yeah. really putting the consumer first was was unique. 
at the time. And so that was our positioning and our focus and, and how we got started. Did you have a dream of like displacing agents, like just sort of just make an online no, marketplace for um, housing? We did not. And this is a, a misconception. On, you know, and, and, and no. the, the assumption was, and probably is, that because we were the Expedia team and the Hotwire team that put so many travel agents out of business by empowering consumers to book travel themselves, that surely we would do that for real estate as well. But it was a, right from the beginning, yeah. it was a very different business plan. The business plan was provide information to consumers, remedy the information asymmetry between professionals and consumers, but monetize with the real estate agent rather than monetize through commerce itself. So yeah. it, it was much more akin to like a WebMD business model. So in WebMD empowers patients yeah. and their families with access to information about their health, but they don't put doctors out of business. In fact, they monetize by doctors and pharma companies advertising on a WebMD type platform. So that was the that was the strategy behind Zillow. And so it's not quite as disruptive as... And in fact, I, I mean, when I used to speak at business schools, for example, I would kind of get tomatoes thrown at me saying like, you know, you guys are such wimps. Like you have this opportunity to put all these stupid real estate agents out of business. Why don't you just do it already? And I was like, no, 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 no. Like you guys have never bought a house before. Like you don't understand. Agents actually add value and it's a complicated thing and people do it really infrequently every five or ten years and and so it's it's not ripe for disruption in the same way that you might that you might think yeah no i mean i think that frequency is such an important factor like five to ten years versus right. how often do you book travel like that makes sense yeah wasn't there a company called like agent oh, there or something so many. To do i mean that? you know discount brokerages or or for sale by owner platforms i am still pitched probably twice a yeah. month every couple of weeks from another startup trying to do it and it, it hasn't worked nobody has has pulled it off and and I, I think there are a couple of reasons for it, but the main one is this is this infrequency of transaction. And I would equate it sort of to like a, like a divorce lawyer or an IPO underwriter. Like if you're getting divorced, you're probably only going to do that once in your life. Like you're not going to run to a discount lawyer. Or if you're selling shares in your company in an IPO, you're not going to go to a discount um, investment bank. You're going to go to the best investment bank and then pay them as little as you can. But you know, if Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley want to charge you six or seven percent, okay, you know. It, it's like too important to screw up and buying or selling a home is yeah. much too important to screw up. And so most people are okay with the, you know, two, three, four, five, maybe 6% commission. They know they don't like it. They might complain about it. They might wish it were lower, but lower commissions don't generally drive market share. When it's all, yeah. And it, when that, the biggest one is, will I say, exactly. will I make an extra 5% of exactly. by selling okay. it properly? Now, yeah. So, all right. So you, you're 27. The, and how did you end up close with the founders of Expedia? Was it through the process of buying Hotwire? I just lost you. I became close with the founders of Expedia because they bought Hotwire. So uh, they were my new... So they were, were they still running Expedia when they bought yeah, you? Yeah. Got it. Okay. And after that, so how long were you doing Expedia before uh, you started working on Probably a year to a year and a half I stayed at Expedia, somewhere in that range. Okay. And so and so they were pretty immediately like... They left, yeah, they left, they left pretty much right, you know, shortly after they bought Hotwire and they kind of hung out for a little while and then and then I stuck around for, for a period of time and then I and then I joined them and we started working on Zillow. Yeah. Okay. And so... Uh, did you guys raise money for you to leave or did you go with uh, We, we that? raised $6 million. The, the, the pre-seed or, or I guess round, the very first money into Hotwire was $6 million and it was from the co-founders. I think, you know, I, I think one one put in $2.5 million, one put in $2.5 million. I think I put in three three dollars $300,000, something like that. And then the other one yeah. or two put in, you know, another couple hundred thousand. So we raised $6 million from ourselves and that was the, the pre-seed round. And then the Series A was Benchmark uh -huh. and TCV and then the Series B was was Par Capital, which was Brad Gerstner was the investor. Brad has gone on to start Altimeter and has become a, a great investor at, at Altimeter. And, um, and then Leg Mason also invested. 
but the initial seed round was from from the founders. And how quick before you were like, this is off to the races, we got it? Like- uh, the original idea that we had was to value everyone's home. We're like, you know what would be cool? To see what everyone's house is worth. That would be fun. That would be interesting. That would be voyeuristic. That would be shocking. That would probably generate a lot of traffic. So let's try to do that. And we spent about six months building the models and building the first version of the site uh, to launch as estimate. And when we launched it, it was in- immediately a hit. We had about a million visitors on the first day. I think we had 4 million unique visitors in the first month. And even to this day, I just lost you. I don't think anyone has had 4 million uniques in their first month or a million in their first day. Uh, That's the good news. The bad news is that it took about two years to get back to that traffic level. That, yeah. you know, so, so we had initial, initial product market fit and then it was a slog to get back up. What to that caused that pop? Did you get a bunch of PR the first yes, day? Yes, it was PR. So, so back then the best way to launch a new business was through PR. And, yeah. but, but really it was the product market fit from the voyeurism of people yes. wanting to look up all their friends and see what their ex-girlfriend's estimate was and their parents' estimate and their boss's yeah. estimate, et cetera. Yeah, but still, that, yeah. that was amplified by PR, you know, the, that wouldn't be the go-to-market today for a new launch. It would probably be social, but um, but back then it was PR, and and then it was a slog to to find a way to get back to to that traffic level. So were, was that your focus, or what were you focused on as one of the? I, I was the CMO, so I you know when we started the company, I ran marketing for the first year, and then I became I think CFO and COO, and then after about a year and a half, I became CEO. So uh-huh. I, I was the I'm the longest serving CEO of Zillow. I think I was CEO for like 12 years or something. My co-founder Rich uh, was CEO. For the first year or so, and then he's been CEO for the last two years since I retired. Um, but but my initial focus was marketing, and so yeah. building out the brand, the product, the, the well, really the go to market on customer and user acquisition. That's where I focused my my time and energy out of the gate. What ended up working, like you said, as you said, it took a year to get back there. Like what ended up getting you there? It was a combination of things. SEO became very important. Data PR became very important. So we had a very concerted effort at Zillow to make us the most widely cited. Uh, data source for housing information. And yeah. we built out an, a team of economists and we collaborated with uh, academic institutions and with the Fed and FHA and the Department of Housing and Urban Development. We did a lot of stuff that burned a lot of cash that without an immediate payback to ultimately with the goal of, of building out a data PR function, which worked. Yeah. And you know nowadays, Almost every day, there are hundreds of news citations of Zillow housing data, and and that you know that took years to build. So I'd say SEO was important, data PR was important, social was very important. So we were very early on Twitter and Facebook, and and then Instagram and now TikTok, and and then one of the other big tailwinds that we experienced was the platform shift to mobile. So when mobile happened, when I mean, I still remember that watching Steve Jobs on online on my on my computer at WWDC, where he explained that they were going to build an app store and people were going to be able to put third party apps onto these new iPhone devices that people had just started to to buy. And I mean, it's hard, it's, it's crazy to think about this, but the first yeah. version of iPhones had no apps. I mean, they had right. Apple apps, they had mail and weather and stocks, and that was it. And then about yeah. a year later, they launched an app store. And so when when that announcement happened, I got up from my desk, I ran over to my co-founder, so I, was, I was like, we have to pivot the company to mobile. And within a couple of weeks, we had changed the name of the company from Zillow.com to just Zillow. We had shifted all of our mobile resources, all of our, our tech resources to mobile web and, and mobile wow. apps. And that's, that's really what jump-started Zillow's user growth. Got it. 
That's amazing. And so I guess, how did you feel good about trusting your gut in that situation? Like you watch Steve Jobs say something again. I remember when they got announced too, and it was like people were using it. It was kind of a uh, luxury iPhone. And it was like, yeah, maybe. Well, so, I mean, it was the category. We, we had this, this belief and it turned out to be right clearly that it's that real estate is the ultimate mobile experience that when you're driving around looking at houses, that's when you want the power of Zillow in your pocket yeah. or in your hand that real estate shopping should be mobile. And so what, what I, I think we all felt really good about making this bet around usage on mobile, what we underappreciated and what became a huge tailwind to the business and allowed us to go, go public and succeed was how well we monetized on mobile. And, uh-huh. you know, if you, if you rewind time, think about Facebook, for example, that had a disastrous IPO. And the reason they did is at the time they went public, about half their usage was on mobile. And they had Mm -hmm. never run a single ad on mobile at the time of their IPO. It was unclear, what should the ad unit be? Will advertisers buy it? How disruptive will it be on the small screen to the user experience? Whereas Zillow had this this incredible good fortune that the the monetization works better on mobile because it's close to call. It's like you're looking at a home and you can text the agent, you can call the agent, and that's how Zillow monetized on mobile. So no, only did we have a usage tailwind of mobile versus desktop, but we were one of the very, very few companies that actually monetized better, not worse, on mobile. Everybody else yeah. monetized worse on mobile than than we did. Yeah, I remember that era, and then quickly changed. So, uh, and so you you ran it for twelve years. You said right, your CEO. I did. Yeah, years. yeah. So I think now what are we? In? We're in twenty twenty two now. I think in twenty nineteen. Well, back up in twenty sixteen, I moved back to Los Angeles after. 12, 15 years in Seattle. And so for personal reasons, my wife and I wanted to be back in LA. So for three years, I commuted from LA back and forth to Seattle. And that grew very tiresome. And so that was was weekly or sometimes multiple times a week. And we had thousands of employees by that point. And it was a very in-office culture. And so I was traveling almost every day. On a Monday morning, I'd fly from LA up to Seattle. I'd be in the Seattle office on Monday. On Tuesday, I would fly to New York. And then I would fly to Denver. And then I would fly to... you know, wherever. And I'd get home by Friday exhausted and having flown tens of thousands of miles. And so uh, about three years ago, I decided that was enough. I had kind of accomplished what I wanted to accomplish at Zillow and it was time to, to, to leave and move on. And so I, I, I retired and and then about six months later, COVID happened and Zillow switched to an all remote environment. So, you know, nobody could have predicted that obviously, but the last three years I've been focused on other things. I'm, I'm not as, I'm not involved with Zillow anymore. I'm still a big shareholder, but but I'm not on the board and I'm not involved in the company. What was the market cap when you left? Do you remember? I think it was around 10 billion, maybe, uh, maybe as high as 15 billion, somewhere in that range. I I think today it's like six or seven billion. It's it has not had a, a great couple of years since I've left. There have been a lot of challenges to, to the business that that I hope they figure out. It's been a, a pretty a pretty tough couple of years, and it's been difficult to watch from the outside. Still pretty amazing. You built a ten billion dollar company in fourteen years, give or take. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> not 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 me alone. I, I'd be the first to say that it was totally. it was, yeah. it was a team effort, and the team you know the team deserves all the credit, and, and um, you know, but but I'm very proud and, and pleased to play a part. And so you leaving did you go like it's you, you said you use the word retire was you literally like i'm gonna just take a break like, <laughs> um i wasn't really sure what i was gonna do i did i did try really retiring for like a couple weeks didn't really work but the main thing i did at that point was i i taught so when i left zillow um I, that next day i called harvard where i went to college as we discussed and i called the provost office and i said hey i want to teach i'm an alum and they said you know who are you and i'm like i'm spencer Askoff. i could like hear them googling me and trying to figure out you know who, who the heck i was and I'm like well what do you what are you good at? And I'm like, I'm good at startups and tech stuff. And they're like, well, why don't you teach that at the business school at HBS? And I said, well, I never went to school. 
and I, I want to teach undergrads. And they're like, yeah, but it's a liberal arts education here. And so, you know, I, I, this would be better. Why don't you teach at the business school? So anyway, so HBS allowed me to create a class called Managing Tech Ventures, which is basically how to run a big tech company. And so I taught that uh, course the next semester. I created that course with, a, with another professor and we wrote case studies. They gave me resources to write new case studies. We did two on Zillow. We did one on Hotwire. We did one on Zulily, where I had been on the board. We did one or two on TripAdvisor, where I was on the board. So we wrote all these new case studies of big tech companies. And then I taught this course for a semester to about 100 second year MBAs at HBS. And it was great. And that was kind of the sort of palate cleanser between operating, running Zillow, and then figuring out what I was going to do next. And were you going back and forth to Boston? I was, or? yeah. This was pre-COVID and, yeah. and I would travel to Boston every week and, you know, just for a day. You really didn't get off the move. You were still I, yeah, addicted I, to the- I didn't really stop traveling, although they were very accommodating. They did, they, you know, they basically put like six or eight hours of class on one day. So I only had to go like one day a week and, and they kind of compressed a whole semester into like, you know, half a semester. So it, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, but it was a great experience. I learned a lot from it and I enjoyed it greatly. And awesome. uh, and then the next year I was able to teach a version of this to undergrads. And so I taught about 50 Harvard College undergrads, a class called Startups from Idea to Exit, which is basically how to do a startup which was Harvard College's first ever class on startups. And so that was really fun to create as well. That's Yeah, that's amazing. Are you still doing it then? Uh, not this semester. I may, I might do it next semester. We'll see. I'm, I haven't quite figured that out yet. And, and so where, where did it take you from there? Are you yeah. retired or are you done? No, no, yeah. so not, definitely not done. So after <laughs> I, I, I taught that HBS course, I started 75 and Sunny Ventures, which is my family office. And so 75 and Sunny Ventures is a really active angel investing um, firm. I mean, it, it's, it's my capital, but I've got about 100 investments in startups. And I'm usually investing at the pre-seed Cedar Series A. Of the 100 companies, I tend to over-index index on Los Angeles, so about a third to half of them are in LA. And then by category, uh, about a quarter of them are in prop tech, so real estate tech companies. About a quarter are HR techs, so future of work companies. About a quarter are creator economy or sort of media entertainment. Let's call it like Hollywood meets Silicon Valley. And a quarter are just sort of other companies. And then 75 and Sunny Ventures also incubates startups. So the first one we incubated was .LA, which is the leading news mm-hmm. service that covers LA tech. And we get about half a million readers a month that read .LA. And uh, I think it's doing a great job of li- lifting up the LA tech ecosystem. And then my next startup that I incubated was Picasso. And so I started Picasso with my co-founder, Austin Allison, who was at Zillow with me. And so I'm co-founder and chair of Picasso. Austin is our, our great CEO. And Picasso now is in about 40 markets in four countries. We let people buy portions of second homes. So we're trying to democratize access to second home ownership by letting people buy an eighth or a quarter or a half of the second home and right-size their ownership in that home rather than buying all of it. And then I've started three other companies also that um, are earlier stage. So I'm starting companies. I'm investing in startups and and that's what I'm doing. I'm keeping busy. It sounds like your strategy right now is you're helping get them off the ground, but you're not operating. Yeah, them. exactly. Pretty- so, uh, you know, my goal is to not be CEO of anything <laughs> and, and it's working so far. I'm having a lot of fun. I've got a lot of concurrent projects and I'm, I'm coaching and operating, you know, playing football every day, playing professional level sports to use that, that metaphor for a second, suiting up, being on the field, taking the hits, having the, the highs, but also the lows, like that is all consuming. And I played at a professional level for you know, for 20 years and it was great. I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I'm very happy being on the sidelines now, being a coach, in fact, coaching multiple games on multiple fields at the same time yeah. and sometimes coaching coaches. And that suits me at this stage of my career where I'm in my mid forties and, and I'm enjoying coaching very much. That's awesome. So a couple more questions for you. Uh, number one, what's next? Uh, I mean, hopefully Picasso becomes as big or below and I'm able to mentor and coach the executive 
executive team there and play a part in their in their success. And, you know, maybe I'll create one or two others that hopefully rise to that occasion. We'll see. And, you know, I just I hope I can be as successful at this stage of my career, which is which is the, the coaching and mentoring stage as I was playing. And, you know, there are some coaches like, a, you know, a, a Phil Jackson or a Pat Riley that were great players and also became great coaches. And some of them had even better careers as coaches than than they did as players. And so that's what I'm trying to do. We'll see if we'll see how it goes. Makes sense. And uh, last question for anyone out there trying to achieve their dreams. I mean, you hard charged from the beginning, you know, had these exits young, built crazy startups with crazy values. What would be your advice for someone trying to pursue their dream? Like the one thing that you either did hear or wish you heard as you're someone that does mentor a lot of young people? I think people tend to overstate risk and, you know, startups are hard and they're risky, of course, and many of them fail. Most of them fail. But most people have some sort of a safety net. I, I mean, you know, if, if hotware hadn't worked, I could have gone back to TPG. I could have gone back to investment banking. You know, if you're listening to this and you're at a big tech company and you're thinking about doing a startup, you can probably get another job at a big tech company, even though we're in a recession right now and it's harder than it was. Like, you're probably going to be okay. And so I think it's 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 important not to overestimate risk. And the the it gets harder as you get older. You get more entanglements. You get a mortgage. You get a family. You get... Um, other expenses and other, you know, your opportunity cost goes up as you get older. So figuring out the right time to take that leap is, is important, but it only gets harder older. And so if you, if you wait too long, it, it becomes very, very difficult. Yeah. Got some liabilities. Well, Spencer, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Hawk Thank Talk. you for having me. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.